For there is no distinction, we're in chapter 10, I'm picking it up at verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pretty straightforward. No question there. You've got to be able to call on the name of the Lord. You've got to want to call on the name of the Lord. You've got to be empowered to call upon the name of the Lord. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, he doesn't mention Jesus in that particular one, does he? Is that the Lord he's talking about? Well, did they know that's the Lord he's talking about? Right. No one who. Right. It's within context. There is no question who the kurios here here is. So, for the for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I just think they would have had a lot of trouble with that. They yes, they would have had a hell of a time with that. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of boom. And why yes. let's get the Holy Remember, Spirit we're dealing with Paul's writing to Jewish Christians who have been wanting to exclude to as much as they can from full membership Gentile Christians. They might let them in the door, but they want them to change. And some didn't even want to let them in the door. And here he is saying all who... Call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not works. It's not abstaining from dietary, from, from pork. It's not, it's not wearing certain kinds of clothing. It's not a, obeying the rules with regards to blood. It, it's, it's, not any of, it's not keeping the law. It's, it is prof, professing your faith in the name of the Lord. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very simple, straightforward, not works, not you don't have to change anything. It is simply there and there is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. And generous to all who call on him. That right there is a slap in the face of the standard at that time Pharisaic, any Jewish, frankly, approach to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh prefers the Jews. That was what they expected. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. And the Gentiles were getting pretty good terms to get in. And now they ought to bow and scrape, you know, and chop on themselves and, and do all the stuff to make themselves live, live up to the standards. <coughs> nope, know, not according know, to Paul. He didn't know these people he was writing to, did he? No, well, he knew some of them by virtue of his contacts um, with those who had to leave Rome um, during the expulsion of the Jews under Nero, and they came to Corinth. And he met some of them there, and he learned about some of the church members at that point in time. So he had some contacts with the people of the church in Rome at that point in time. And the people in the church in Rome at that time, I know we've done this before, but peace not here, so I'm 
I'm not clear on it, is were the people in the church at the time that he knew, were these um, Gentiles or Jewish Christians that he knew? Because this is awful strong stuff for people who don't know you. He would have known both. You know, all of them. He would have known Gentile Christians and he would have known some Jewish Christians. So, and Jewish Christians who were Hellenistic Jews and therefore not Palestinian Jews who would have been more amenable to the Gentile community to begin with. The problem with the Jewish Christian community is the, the expatriate Palestinian Jewish community that has become Christian. They're the real problem people. The brethren of James from Palestine itself and those who follow really closely all of the traditions and, and resist Hellenism, uh, Greekification, if you will. Sure. They're the problem people in the circumstances that we're talking about here. The, the Hellenistic Jews were less of a problem um, because they already spoke Greek. They were already used to accommodating themselves to, to, to Gentile practices on a daily basis. They were not offended by someone eating pork in their presence, which the Jewish Christians from Judea were. Well, how many Jewish Christians from Judea were in Rome? Were in Rome? And, I mean, what was the percentage like? I have no idea. I don't think we can say specifically. We do know that that many of the early uh, evangelists who made it to Rome ahead of Paul uh, were from Judea, and were, were Christians from there. We don't even know who started this church, right? Traditionally, the authority in its founding is given to Peter and Paul equally. But but it, it pre-existed Paul to begin with. Peter had a role to play in its establishment as well, either indirectly or directly and probably both. Uh, but for the most part, it was founded by Christians migrating west, proclaiming the message as they went. That's pretty much how it was started. Uh, there were also... Uh, pretty good reasons to suspect that it was the result of people being brought into Rome uh, in chains. <clears throat> people who correct because the household. Yeah, there's uh, one of the earliest Christian communities outside of of both well Palestine and the eastern half of the Roman Empire, especially uh, Asia Minor, Palestine area. One of the earliest Christian families that has been identified has been the ruling family of the Silurian Kingdom in England. And they were defeated by the Romans and their leading general and royal family were uh, imported to Rome in chains, quote-unquote, as prisoners, which was common practice for the Romans. And you can read uh, Caractacus, he was the general, leading uh, British general, uh, when, they, when the Romans took Great Britain, took the British Isles, or part of the British Isles, they deported many of the... Um, leading family members and general type folk uh, back to Rome and that's another way of controlling the people left at home by the way and part of that one of those ruling families of the Silurian kingdom the leader his name is Caractacus and it, you can read his you can read his speech to the Roman senate in the imperial annals written by Tacitus I mean he's a very well known person in history ancient history and uh, according to the early traditions of the Roman church in Eusebius and Irenaeus who cite this, his household was one of the most important segments of the early Christian church there in Rome because he had been converted earlier. 
So Paul is writing to a bunch of Brits also? Is that what you're telling Well, some of the Gentiles who are in Rome who are early Christians are actually uh, people who have been brought to Rome from Great Britain, from the British Isles, that have been defeated by Rome. You should read the drama of the lost disciples. Yeah. I thought that's a phenomenal book. Very easy to read. There's a lot of question as to its authenticity. However, there seems to be good archaeological evidence as well as historical evidence within the church itself from Irenaeus and Eusebius and others that there was a Christianization occurring, an early Christianization occurring in the British Isles as early as the mid to late 30s. And, yeah. Well, we think of that as, a, as hard to believe, but, <laughs> but you've you got to understand the ancient world at that time and the trade routes and all included great, the British Isles. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Rome wanted to take the British Isles. The British Isles were an important source of raw materials, particularly tin. Well, yeah, Joseph Arimathea. Right. The connection is is that supposedly, and this is the theory, Joseph of Arimathea, who we know from Scripture, uh, was involved in the early evangelization of the British Isles. This is some very ancient... uh, The Venerable Bebe contains some references to the event itself. Um... Irenaeus talks about uh, Caractacus being one of the earliest uh, Christians in, in his family, being one of the earliest Christian families in Rome. Um, and when they got there, they found that there were Christians who had come from Palestine who were already in Rome. And, oh, wow, wow. Huh. Hello. <laughs> and so some of the earliest elements of the Roman church seems to be deported Celts from the British Isles who were who were imported into Rome to try to maintain control over the occupied territories of the British Isles. And they would bring in the generals and the leading family and the king and that kind of folk. And Caractacus was the was the principal person who is referenced in history. This was after Nero then, right? Yeah. Well, it was after the taking of the British Isles. You know who took the British Isles, don't you? Who took? Who was the who? Who originally took the British Isles? Not Mel Gibson, okay? No. (laughs) Well, Julius Caesar started it. Yeah. Yeah, So before Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Keep 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 that in mind. Before Jesus, the first beachheads were struck in Great Britain by the Romans. It was after them, the same general and the same legions that surrounded Rome, I mean, uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. Oh my God, I hope Caesar Augustus right now. No, Titus. Titus, yeah. The same Roman general who surrounded Jerusalem in 70 AD, before 70 AD, yeah. not to 70 AD, and sacked the temple, was also the principal general and his legions that were responsible for taking the central and northern regions of Great Britain up to Hadrian's Wall. Well, see that evil one that used to burn the Christians and let them, you know, put them on stops? And you mean them? that was uh, Domitian? No. Oh, Domitian, okay. Um, Titus was right Titus, behind, wasn't huh? Wasn't Titus either right before or right after him? Right, right before him. Yeah. yeah. Now, so Titus, but, but before that he was a general. And his army, he took his forces 
from the far west to the far east. Think about that. We don't normally think about that. That seems like a logistics nightmare. But but they had the ability to do it because they had not only ocean faring vessels that they could use, they had some they had the roads. And their soldiers marched them. I don't know why it is such a shock to modern people to think that the Roman Empire, the same army, essentially the legions, yeah. that took, retook, and fought in Great Britain, less than a decade later would be situated in outside of Jerusalem. But that's the fact. It's a fact. And so there were there was at, there were contacts. And the British Isles were under Roman, if not direct, then certainly indirect Roman control before the life of Jesus. And then during and after the life of Jesus, there was authority there. But it wasn't until after the time of Jesus that Caractacus was defeated in the 40s, I think it was. And that was the last of the uh, opposition to the Roman authorities in Siluria, portion of, of of the British Isles. So the way you're painting, this sounds like it's a conspiracy now. This is really good information. Joseph of whatever Joseph could have started this whole thing. He could have started the church in Rome, from what you're saying. Not directly. In Britain. He started, he was, he and, he and some of the early Christians, the outer circle of the disciples, went to England and essentially started some of the early church there. And then they were defeated by the Romans, deported into Rome, and started the church there, and when they or contributed to the beginning of the church there, which seems to be more likely, because there were Christians coming west through other routes, and as early as the 50s they were already there, we know. To which so. this letter was written. And this letter was written wow. to the house churches in Rome that were made up of people from indigenous to Rome, people from Greece and, and Asia Minor, people from Great Britain, from Gaul, what we think of as France, uh, you know, all across the because Rome was the seat, was the capital of the empire. So Funny how God ties us all together, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now the Jewish contingency that would be the most trouble would be the those who were Jew, Palestinian Jews yeah. who were merchants who lived in Rome and attended the synagogues there and did not want to accommodate themselves to the Gentile culture. Yeah, right. They lose, lose their power, they lose their position. Exactly. The Hellenistic Jews were less of a problem, were more easy to accommodate themselves, had already done a big degree of that. And then the earliest Gentile converts... Who, hadn't, who were made, especially in the eastern part of the empire, but this is also true in Rome, were those who had already been attending synagogue as Gentiles and then heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, in the, the, this very proclamation here at the end, in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. They had been told there was a distinction. And in Christ Jesus, they hear there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. And generous to all who call on him. All right. So they heard that, and it just it just resonated with them. And then they heard the proclamation of those who had met the disciples, people who who the proclamation of those who knew those or who had met those had been converted by those who knew Jesus and that kind of stuff. 
And early on, you had people like that. I actually happen to believe many of the traditions about Joseph of Arimathea, but those are very hard to get your hands on. That part of the history of the church is very slippery because it really wasn't recorded solidly anywhere until later. Um, The Church of Glastonbury, if you visit, if you go to England and you visit Glastonbury, you'll hear all the stories about Joseph of Arimathea. You get to see the site of Mary's Chapel. You get to see the. Supposedly, it was founded by Joseph. They claim it. It was founded by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Many people say, well, but the Roman Catholic Church didn't start the church in in Great Britain until, you know, Gregory went there. No. If you go back and look at the list of the bishops who were present at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, well before Gregory the Great, you notice that there were British bishops who were there and were listed as being among the most superior in terms of tenure as Christians, i.e. their churches dated back to nearly as far back as you can go. You'll enjoy reading that book. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating it's book. It is. It's, it's well-written, too, I think. Um, jo- another fellow by the name of Milner wrote a fa- fabulous book, Did the Apostle Paul Visit Britain? Oh, that's a good one. Which, makes, which, oh, ad- which lifts up a lot of this information. Mm-hmm. And it's not outside the bounds of possibility. His intention was to go to Spain. But what he had stated was his intention was to go to the very edge of the empire, to take the gospel to all the Gentiles. What was the edge of the empire at the time? The British Isles. Yeah. And isn't isn't the St. Paul's Cathedral built on? It's uh, St. Paul's Cathedral is built in Ludhill, and it's it's supposed to be date back to the site where Paul preached in London, in Londonium, at the time. Whether or not that's true, it's hard. That's part of that slipperiest history to get your hands on. But Paul's intention was to go to Spain take the gospel to the edge of the empire. When he got there, he would have heard, if not already, and if he probably already had by the time he got to Rome, well, all the way to the British Isles. It does seem like he would have written some letters, don't you think, with all the other letters he wrote? At least one that you might have found. He may have, and they got lost. (laughs) Of course. How convenient. (laughs) Well, look, there's an interesting argument to be made there. I know we're way off topic. We really don't have the time. I'm trying to catch up. There's a a fascinating argument to be made there. If you look, you notice that the letters that we have from Paul all come from churches that are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. And it's believed, and I think it's a pretty good argument, that people who knew Paul and knew he had been a letter writer because they had read a letter of his or had been the person who had carried a letter of his to a church, wondered, what if he had written letters to other churches? And so they decided to go around to the churches that they read about in the Acts of the Apostles and find out if Paul had written them letters. They find out that he did in some of the churches, and so they had, can I have a copy of it? And they give them a copy, and they make a copy of it, and that's it. And he, that's how the collection occurred. And there's some interesting speculation as to who may have done that. But we know the collection had to be made as early as 90 AD. Had to be done by 90 because it's being quoted from by Clement of Rome by 92. 
So Paul's letters were first collected as early as 90 AD, which is pretty early. But only the letters that we have all seem to come from churches that are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles and not anywhere outside of that. And so that has developed speculation that the person who did the collection only asked the churches that are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. Any other church that Paul may have gone to that, that may have written to that isn't mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles may have had a letter but didn't get collected. It's a possibility. That, that, lost, that lost chapter of Acts. I think that's spurious. <laughs> I, I've examined that. I've read the thing. I, I think it's spurious. It doesn't read like the rest of Acts to me. It might be, but there's no real... No solid textual evidence to prove that, that the end of Acts is missing. So that's that's my problem with the argument. But it's a fascinating read. It, there's a there's a there's a proposed lost chapter to the Acts of the Apostles, the last chapter, 29th chapter of the Book of Acts, and and it purports to be the story of Paul's ministry to Great Britain. And it, it, it's an interesting read, but it reads differently than than the rest of Acts, and that makes you wonder as to whether or not it's authentic. And, oh well, but uh, we have no copies of it in any of the Greek manuscripts, no copies of it in any of the early Latin manuscripts, um, and so that raises the question as to whether or not it's authentic. So, but let's get let's get back to the scripture we got in front of us. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one whom they have not, in whom they have not believed? Faith, literally. Epistuosan. How, but how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, they're rhetorical questions, of course. I mean, it's... He's drawing an argument here. He's building an argument here. But I'm going to read it with a slight translation difference. And how are they to call on one in whom they have not faithed? And how are they to believe, uh, to, to, to faith in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him Unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I'm glad he said beautiful and not how beautiful, how wonderful is the smell of the feet of those. Um, of course, that's a wonderful quote from the Old Testament itself. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes, there they translated faith. And in verse 17, it's, it's the very simple nominative form, pistis. So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes 
through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by means of the word of Christ. Hmm. Hmm. So he's developed a sequence here. You must hear. It must be proclaimed. You must hear. You must exercise your belief, i.e. faith. And it's a sequence of events that produce it. And those who proclaim that message, they got pretty feet. <laughs> well, well, it says welcome. Welcome. Read, read, read the read the whole. Can you take your shoes off. No. Unless you want to put on, unless you want to put on a clothespin on your nose, I do not recommend it. Perhaps you should wash them in the sacrament of foot washing. There you go. Why are they so beautiful? You wash them often. Okay, beginning. And I got. Well, no. I got hairy toes. All right. TMI. TMI. All right. Romans chapter. 10 verse 14 read start from there and read the whole sequence in your I've got a different one I know you got the new English I want you to read the new English okay alright from chapter 14 you said no verse 10 verse 14 of chapter 10 verse verse 14 how could they invoke one in whom they had no faith whoa 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 no repeat that how could they invoke one in whom they had no faith Good. Keep That's going. The opposite. Yeah. And how could they have faith in one they had never heard of? I like it. Keep going. And how here without someone to spread the news? Okay. And how could anyone spread the news without a commission to do so? All right. And that is what Scripture affirms. How welcome are the feet of the messengers of good news? Oh. How welcome are the welcome feet of a messenger of good news? And in other words, it, it, that's a beautiful metaphor. You, you welcome them in. They have come to you. You welcome them in. The idea that, that the proclamation of the gospel is sent to you. By the way, uh, that's part of the foundation Behind the concept of a sent rather than a called ministry, that 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 the ministry that the gospel is sent out. You don't call a pastor; the pastor is called by God and then sent to you. And that's why we practice the type of ministry we do in the United Methodist Church, where clergy are sent out to pastor churches, not called by churches to pastor them. It's a completely different way of looking at ministry, and it's rooted in this concept that the message of the gospel, the good news, is sent out by God and received by the people and should be welcomed as it is proclaimed here. All right? Keep going. I want to hear more. Mm-hmm. I like that. I love how it translates that as pistio here is faith. I love that. Keep going. But not all have responded to the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? We conclude that faith is awakened by the message, and the message that awakens it comes through the word of Christ. Wow. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. Read your verse 17 again. We conclude that faith is awakened by the message. Awakened? Awakened? By the message. 
So faith is innate, but when you get the message, it works out. Well, faith is a gift that you that you have by God's grace. But it is a its ability, its function within you is is awakened when you hear that message. That's the idea. So it's you're born with it. Well, it's given to you. It is a gift that you receive by God's prevenient grace, the grace that goes before you. Awesome. Ah, so you're born with it. Like then, it's, it's the response. It is the part of the cross that is universal, that you do nothing to receive. It is implanted in you. It's not that you're born with it. It's that it is a gift that all receive. Now, if you don't hear the gospel, it's not awakened. It's not brought up. It's not given life. So you need to be hearing the gospel. Hence, you need to be welcoming those who proclaim the good news, the message. Faith comes from what is heard. It's a slightly different way of rendering that. Let's see. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of, of Christ or by the word of God is is another rendering there. Verse 17. Well, what is heard. And faith rises from what is heard. Huh. Yeah, and faith rises or comes out of or or emerges from or rises upon what is heard. And what is heard comes by means of the word of Christ. And here, the word of Christ is not Lagos Christos, but like it was earlier, Rematos Christu. Rema, rematos, the the utterance of the, the word, yes, but it's the spoken word, the the uttered word, the proclaimed word, not so much the written word. Although the written word will produce the proclaimed word, it's the proclamation that's important, not just it's having been written. So it's not. There's two words in. There's two words for word in Greek. Lagos, spelled in English, Lagos, and Rematos. These are the two words in Greek for word. This is usually used of written words. Lagos. This is usually used of spoken words or proclaimed words. But this is not just a word spoken. It's the very content of that word. What the words or word mean is the rhema, the rhematos. So this is more specific. This is more general. This communicates that. Rematos can be that which communicates the Logos. And in, when you're talking about it in terms of Johannine terminologies, this is Jesus. Logos is Jesus. And Rematos would be the gospel about Jesus. Alright? So... Logos is a title given to Jesus when it, in John where it says in the beginning was the word. There it's Logos that is used. Alright? 
It sounds yeah. like it'd be exactly the opposite of that. No, it's not. This is specific word. This is a concrete, particular concept. This is a more generalized concept and would be the equivalent of the word gospel or euagelion, a proclaimed message. And it, it is sort of that which is the message that is made up of a bunch of Logi or words. Well, the Ramatos requires faith in faith. Yes! It would be, you could okay. say that yeah. Logos, when you add, when faith, when faith is added to the words, you get Ramatos. When pistis, faith, is added to Logos, the word, you get Ramatos, the proclaimed word. All right? And that's kind of the distinction that Paul is drawing here. He uses logos and he uses rematos. He uses rematos when he's talking about that which is proclaimed. And notice, it's not understood or read. It's akuo, heard. The word heard in Greek is used here. Akues or akuo is the Greek word for to hear. And it's what you, what you hear with your ears. Yeah. He's setting that up for when he's about to slap the Jewish Christian. He's setting him up again. Dang. I mean, that's... He does that. that He's he's continually doing that. No, he's set up. He's he's setting it up for the next chapter. Yes, he is setting it up for the next chapter. He's about to set it up. You've got to remember, there are no chapters and verses in the original. He's constantly building his argument. Continually. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. It's another quote from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says... I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Who's the who's the not a nation and the foolish nation referenced here that are going to make the Jews pissed? Yes, because they they called they the the Jews called non Jews goyim. What does Goyim mean? It means people without a nation. <laughs> then Isaiah is so bold as to say, quote, quoting for God, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Right before that, though, where he says, I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Mm-hmm. Is he talking about Israel He's talking to Israel about the Gentiles who are going to come to God. This bit about uh, making them, making, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Look, these Gentiles, like he said earlier, they did not seek after righteousness and yet God gave it to them. They did not try to build righteousness of their own, but God gave it to them for faith. This is a reference to that very thing. 
I will make you a make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Oh. How could the Jews be jealous of those stinky goyim? Well, easy. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Because why? I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Jews are constantly seeking after God. They're constantly trying to do what God wants them to do, or what they think God wants them to do. They're trying to live by the, by, by the law. They're trying to be good. And here, the stinking goyim have found God. Not by keeping the law, but by faith. Of course they're going to be angry. I don't blame them for being angry, but they're wrong. (laughs) Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, speaking for God, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Which is a refrain that keeps on going on and on and on and on. The Jews had received, the Hebrew people as a whole, the Jews specifically, had received the word of God. They had received the law. They had received the word of the prophets. And they had rejected each and they refused to do what God had said. And yet they tried to establish their own righteousness by obeying a very uh, abridged version of the law. And they tried to build their own righteousness as if they could. And they didn't understand why it didn't meet with God's approval. God said, I'm not seeking after your sacrifices, but a contrite heart. A heart that recognizes its need of grace. Literally. But he loved, according to this commentary in Isaiah 62, uh-huh. he says he loves them anyway. Oh, of course he loves he them anyway. up and I love you anyway. So. Oh, yeah. That's the amazing really thing about God. No, but that, I think that is. That is, the, that is the amazing thing about God. That they could turn their back so much on a God and go in the opposite direction, yet he still does love them and he still does provide provisions for them. And will regraph them. Chapter 11. I was determined to get into chapter 11. (laughs) I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, remember we were talking about that earlier and about the question of whether or not God has rejected God's own people by welcoming in Gentiles? No. No. The family's been broadened from the narrow view of one that is defined only by the law. Instead, it's by faith, as it always really was. Something Meganoria again, he says. Yeah. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Hell no. Meganoita. <laughs> Meganoita. Here's, here's what that word looks like. Here, let me write it down. I, I, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> He uses it a lot. Well, I got a nice laugh out of it in church on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. yeah, you shocked some people with that one. Did I really? <laughs> I saw some faces. Yeah. Mostly the older people. This is a negative particle, not. And that right there is, can mean... Genoita. 
genoita means literally be so, so let it not be so, or in the idiomatic usage, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> My Bible has God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. It's an idiomatic particle. It doesn't really mean what it says, just like we do that all the time in English. Hi there. Oh. Try to translate hi there into another language. When I was when I was taking a Russian, we were first year Russian class, we were trying to to say hi there. And, and you know, wanted to say hi there before we'd learned the one of the hardest words in Russian to learn, which is hello. Здравствуйте. <laughs> we had we were walking around saying the word for high, H-I-G-H, Visoki, and there, which is Tom. And so we were joking around, and we would say, Visoki Tom, Visoki Tom. It sounded good, and a Russian professor heard it and says, huh? What's well, high there? And she started to laugh. And she says, oh, that is so funny. <laughs> you know how we say hello if we don't want to say Zdrasvutya? What? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. <laughs> why did you tell us that to begin with? Say hi there. Uh, but that means nothing in Russian, other than hi there. Yeah, exactly. And it, it makes no sense. But hi there in English is is an idiomatic particle, which doesn't really mean what it says. Hey there. Hey there is even better. Hey there, like hey. Uh, what 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 cow seed? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I then I asked that has God rejected His people? Megunoita. I myself am an Israelite. Notice he uses that term, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. We've heard this before. You going to hear it again? <laughs> Isn't it amazing they forget that that's just one of 13 of them? Yeah. Well, yeah, if you count the half-tribes of Joseph. A member of the tribe of Benjamin. He identifies himself as an Israelite by virtue of the fact that the Jews called themselves Israelites. And they are Israelites in a, in a fashion. But it, you know it's not politically proper. The northern kingdom became Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. But there, he, I, the, excuse me. By his day, the Jews identified themselves as Israelites. So, by no means, I myself as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's setting his credentials. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Yeah. Do you not know what the Scripture says of of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. And this is actually where Elijah was whining to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. And they're seeking my life too. (laughs) But what is the divine reply to him? I love this. I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept a remnant. They haven't all done it, you whiny little sniveling. Go outside and stand with your face covered. 
And I'll come in the silence. Not what you expect. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Chosen by grace. Not by anything they've done. Not by any works of theirs. Ek login, from eklektos, meaning elected. Caritas, by grace, charis. Chosen, elected. Oh, the Presbyterians would love that. Mm -hmm. Chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So here he's making his argument contrary to those who are whining and saying, well, Paul's just rejecting us. Paul's throwing us to the wolves. He's letting those Gentiles in, those nasty sneaking goyim in, and he is throwing us to the wolves. And he is saying, nah, I am an Israelite. I am a child of the tribe of Benjamin too. You are just like Elijah whining to God. God has prepared a remnant. God has prepared a remnant now like then. I suppose they could have interpreted it as, well, that's even worse now. So even out of my, my grouping, yeah, I haven't been chosen because I'm not part of that remnant because I disagree with you. <laughs> um, that might be their response. Could very well have been their response. We don't know what it was, but it could have been. Yeah. Look, stupid idiot. If you hear this, say, hey, that's me. <laughs> Come on, be smart. Oh. But notice what he says. Chosen by grace. So too at the present time, today, right now, there is a remnant. Chosen by grace. But it is not, but but if it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not by virtue of your ability to approximate the law. It's not by your ability to be good. It's not by your ability to obey the Ten Commandments and all the other rules and regulations. It's not on basis of your being a really good Pharisee. That is not how you are part of that remnant. It's by grace. As is everything else. As is the entrance of the Gentiles. As is anybody's life of faith, including Abraham's. It's by grace, not by works. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, what, what were they seeking? Righteousness. According to Paul earlier on, righteousness. And they were trying to build their own, not God's. That's always the disaster what Adam and Eve were trying to do. Build their own understanding rather than on God's version of righteousness. Huh. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written. God gave them a sluggish spirit. Eyes that would not see. And ears that would not here, down to this very day. Those who don't exercise faith, those who do not receive the gospel and have faith awakened within them, those who who don't hear, that's what that's what they've received. 
God gave them a sluggish spirit. Eyes that would not see. Notice, eyes that would not see. Willfully would not see. Ears that, ears that willfully would not hear. Could, I think, is a bad translation. Yeah, I thought you would. So he's talking to the group of people who God chose. You could say that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the whole, all the who, who they were given that favor and grace that they were chosen, yet time and time again they rejected. And what was the basis of their being chosen? God's foreknowledge. He said it right up there in a previous verse. And God's foreknowledge of what? We learned that a couple of chapters ago. Their response of faith. Their willingness to respond by faith, not by works. Not by depending upon themselves, but by faith. That's where God's quote-unquote foreknowledge comes into play. Those who will make use of the grace received. So is he talking here in verse 8 about those Jews then who have rejected that grace and rejected what was given to them so that like those who have not all Jews have there's a remnant who have recognized Christ Jesus the ones who haven't are those the ones that are being hard that are being pushed yes but they're not being pushed because it's because they refuse to exercise faith exactly they've rejected God so Paul cannot understand someone rejecting so his opinion is that God put them in some kind of stupor. The only way he can understand. That's what I mean. The only, only way he can come to grips with this, with their rejection of Jesus, is that they must have been, they must have been hardened against the message. And why have they been hardened? Because they refused to depend upon Jesus by faith. Instead, they want to depend upon themselves. So he doesn't consider. Timidness, not understanding, uh, rejection through uh, the temple is gone, everything's gone. You know, this, this hard, they don't, he doesn't consider anything else except God hardening their heart. Um, that's, that's unusual, really. He's trying to comprehend why they may be timid or why they refuse to exercise faith. That's what he comes up with. He cannot comprehend that. They have the prophets. They have the totality of God's revelation in Scripture. They have heard the message about Jesus and they have refused to receive it and act upon it in faith. They prefer to try and establish their own righteousness rather than accept God's righteousness freely given for faith. And he cannot understand why somebody would prefer to beat on themselves and, and try to make themselves behave and obey and follow the law when it can be so easy to simply trust that Jesus has done it for you and allow Christ to live within you and live by faith. He cannot, uh, I agree with him, I can't comprehend why somebody would want to try to make themselves righteous rather than accept God's righteousness freely given. And he just says, it must be because they've been blinded. Blinded, blinded, I think, and I'm drawing a conclusion here that's not really warranted by Scripture, but that's okay. I think maybe blinded out of their own arrogance. 
their own self-will, their own desire to establish their own righteousness. They want it to be theirs so they can be prideful for it. It's the sin of pride. And rather than being willing to be humble and recognize they can't be perfect, therefore you rest on Christ's perfection. They want to try to make themselves perfect. That's a height of arrogance that you think you could do that. You could outperfect Christ. You think you can be better than Jesus? And that's what's hardening. That's what is reducing the sluggish spirit, eyes that would willfully not see, ears that would willfully not hear. Literally, that phrase is translated, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not. The, and he's quoting, the play, huh? he's quoting oh, yeah. from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Isaiah originally said that, do you can you recall? No, I don't remember. What, We'd have to look it up. Who he's talking, what he's talking about, and what who the people he's talking about. What's the passage? Isaiah six eight through ten. Yeah. <laughs> Isaiah six, but glory's because it's in Mark. It's in. Well, what's the Isaiah reference? Six eight through ten. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying. That's Yahweh. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate. Until so he's the, punishing them for what? And, until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a tenebrith or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Part of the, it's part of the calling of Isaiah to proclaim judgment of God against the people of Israel for their acts of engaging in idolatrous worship. Verse the, the last part of the verse is obscure and textually corrupt. This is verse 13. And textually mm-hmm. corrupt and perhaps should be restored to read, quote, like the tenebrith of the goddess and the oak of Ashereth cast out with the pillar of the high places. That is, like the destroyed furnishings of a pagan high place. What the Israelites had been doing was engaging in the worship of the gods, especially of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And this is the punishment for it. Since they refuse to stop their worship of other gods, I'm going to harden them so they won't get the warnings to stop and they'll get punished. So Paul is pulling this forward. Paul is pulling this into Romans. And the, but they, these people haven't 
They haven't engaged in the worship of the Asterisks. They haven't engaged in the worship of the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping their own ability to keep the law. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. And Paul is saying Christ establishes righteousness by grace through faith. Accept that. And that's all you need to do. But he's trying to understand why they won't receive that message. And he's saying they are hardened just like these people were hardened. And they're hardened because they're essentially worshiping themselves and their own ability to keep the law. He's equating, as he's done elsewhere, he's equating trying to keep the law and be perfect and thereby be saved with idolatry. That's pretty stiff. He's slapping them upside the heads what he's doing. He's giving these Jewish Christians a real hard time here. Well, I think he's saying get over yourself or you're going to end up with nothing. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Get over yourself and your own, your own presumption that you can make yourself perfect because you can't. You cannot live up to God's standard on your own. It's impossible. But Christ did. And the only reason why I can conceive of, Paul speaking, the only reason why I can conceive that you don't hear this and, and, and follow the advice and the call and the, the message of the gospel, it must be because you've been dulled and put into a stupor and you will willfully not hear and you will willfully not see. Can I ask a question? Sure. This little section. The, when I read 7 and 8, what then, that which Israel seeketh after, the same it hath not obtained. The election, however, hath obtained it, and the rest have been hardened. Even as it is written, God hath given unto them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see, and ears not to hear, until this very day. Is he talking there about the, um, the, uh, the election, however, have obtained it? So is verse 8 talking about the rest have been hardened, or... The um, the uh, election that are now reawakened after their stupor and eyes not to hear. And um, it's that those who refuse to receive the gospel, period, in any, I would say, frankly, in any, from any source. I mean, whoever they may have been before, if they're not receiving the gospel now, there has to be a reason for it. And the elect here have received it. Those who are elect, who are elect because God knows that they exercise faith. They, that, that God knows they will receive. It's the question of the chicken and the, egg, and the egg. The desire is to say that God causes this. Why does God cause it? I mean, there's got to be a reason why they don't. So why does God cause it? Because God knows that they don't exercise faith. You get yourself in a nice little circle there. And who is it? It's the people who who are refusing. So it's the rest that have been hardened. It's the rest who've been hardened. And and to expand it slightly, it's any who refuse to exercise faith. In other words, there are times in even the elect's life where they're gonna be not seeing and not hearing willfully denying refusing when we backslide and fail to exercise faith 
we're doing this. We all become guilty at one point or another of trying to handle things on our own. Right. That's now, just what we do. What is predominant in your life, though? Is it this that's raining? Is it that we sometimes like to just not listen and not look? But most of the time we do. Some people, it seems to be the, thing, the fact that it's raining all the time. But this is, this is what's controlling them all the time. So, I mean, I, looking at it in a, in, a, in a hard cut, black and white kind of way is one way to do it. I think it's, it's a little more dynamic than that. It's certainly true for those who refuse, period, ever, forever, who say, I'm going to establish my own righteousness. I'm going to be good and obey the law. And then verse 9 when it says, and David saith, so now he's talking, he's quoting David then for the same people. Let their table, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and keep their backs forever bent. That sounds like a curse to me. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to achieve it, so let everything that they do be made waste. Let every attempt of theirs to obtain righteousness of the, by, their self, by themselves and of their own ability Fail. be failed. Yeah. God for David of all people. But you know, Jeez, if maybe. that's happening, if this is happening, if I'm trying to establish my own righteousness and every effort fails, I want to say, maybe I'm going to say, hopefully I'm going to say, what am I doing wrong? It's another way of God getting your attention. Well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So exactly. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? Make an ointment. Hell no. But their but through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If it's good news that the, the Jews who are trying to obtain righteousness on their own by their own strength and abilities, their failure to do that, and they're getting pissed off because of that, if that creates more room for Gentiles to come in, that's great. How much more room is there going to be when they themselves also come in? So they're not being kept out forever. These people who are currently experiencing this sluggish spirit and eyes that will willfully not see and ears that will willfully not hear, these folk will eventually be included. That's how I read that. He's, remember, he's responding to this claim. You're throwing us to the wolves. You're, you're ignoring us. You're interested in the Gentiles and you hate us. No, no I'm one of you. <coughs> but because you've been doing this, God's making room for Gentiles to come in. And if that's producing the wonderful benefit and the bounty of the Gentiles' conversion to God, how much more will it be when you come back in? Your full inclusion. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Oh, he's shifting his target. 
Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry. Now, just a second. He spent most of the last ten chapters, the apostles of the Gentiles, by self-proclamation, the apostles of the Gentiles has spent ten, mostly most of ten chapters, writing to Jewish Christians, saying to them, "You're rejecting these Gentiles, and you need to stop it." Here, let's summarize the last ten chapters. <laughs> Jewish Christians, stop picking on them, Gentile Christians. God has accepted them on the same basis God has accepted you. It's called grace. It's called faith. Live with it. All right. There we go. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. <laughs> For if their rejection is the re reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches are also holy. My friends, writing out to the Gentiles, look. I've been contending with them. I've been contending with my Jewish brethren here over you. You are included. You are have been included by God's grace, and that's been fabulous. If for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, because they have rejected Christ, the Jews who have not become Christians have rejected Christ. Now he's speaking about the Jews in general. If their rejection of Christ has resulted in the gospel going to the entire world, and it has, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? <coughs> and they've rejected Christ now. Even the Jewish Christians tend to be rejecting Christ and try to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to be good on their own and not accept the righteousness of Christ. They also have rejected Christ. They've done so with far more guilt than the Jews who have never heard the gospel. At least that's my read of it. But if, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough Offered as the first fruits, the first produce, the first production of the dough, offered as the first fruits offering, is holy, and it is, then the whole batch is holy. The whole batch, all of it is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if let's finish the whole thought, although it's a set, next, it's, a, it's essentially a different paragraph. It's the same thought continued. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, he's writing to the Gentiles, a wild olive shoot were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast 
over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You got nothing to be bragging about, Gentiles. You will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unfaith, lack of faith, negative faith, opistuo. But you stand only through faith, pistis. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Be amazed by this, friends. You're standing in faith. They've been broken off because of their disfaith. You've been grafted in because of your faith. That really ought to make you stand in awe, friends. This says, be not high-minded, but fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be not high-minded or arrogant, you know, but fear. Be amazed by it. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, you know, the, the, the Jews, perhaps he will not spare you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Don't you get too proud now. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Which right there, by the way, is a little note to those... Calvinist there. What's this been about having continue? I thought once you were once saved, always saved. Um, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Not apparently, it's a simple fact, it's stated. You've got to continue in his kindness. You've got to continue acting in faith. You've got to continue doing that which got you grafted in to begin with, which is exercising faith. And even those of Israel. If they do not persist in their disfaith, will be grafted in. Pausing there for a second. Will be grafted in. The imagery there is identical to the grafting into the Gentiles. Not by virtue of having been born naturally into the from the root, but by virtue of being grafted in by faith. The same ground upon which the Gentiles are in it. We are all, since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, we are all part of the vine by faith. By faith. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in disfaith, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Look, you Gentile Christians, don't you be sitting there high-fiving each other when you hear this we're being read and I'm slapping my, my Jewish brethren upside the head over there picking on you. Don't you be high-fiving yourselves. Don't you? For them, you wouldn't be high-fiving. Exactly. If it weren't for their stupidity, you never would have heard the gospel to begin with. And guess what? If you stop faithing like they stopped faithing, you could end up being cut off too. So stand and on. Don't be proud of yourself. All you're doing is exercising faith, a gift you've already received. And guess what? They may well be grafted back in. If you, a wild one, were put in by faith... What about those people who grew up with the Hebrew Bible, grew up with the stories of Abraham? 
Isn't it more? Doesn't it make sense that they're going to get grafted in too? It sounds like uh, if you guys stray, good luck. If they stray, they're the same blood type. They can get back in easier. You're not going to make it in as easy well, as they can. The Gentiles come with a deficit. Yeah. They do not have the rearing being inculcated with the Hebrew Bible like the Jews had been. They don't know the stories right. as part of their blood. The Gentiles are fresh to the stuff of Abraham and, and the stories from the scriptures. This is all new to them. And they live in a society and a culture that is definitely not steeped in the, the law or in any reference to, to Yahweh. So they have the deck stacked against them, culturally speaking. The Jews have the opposite problem. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Kind of spiritual pride going on there. The Gentiles, you know, they're a wild olive branch. They've been grafted into this, this tree uh, almost unnaturally. They're living in it by faith now. And it'd be easy for them to get chopped out if they stop faithing. If the natural branches got cut off for their lack of faith, if they start faithing, they're coming back. And you ought to be ready and happy for that and praying for that, just as I am. It's essentially what he's saying. They will be grafted back in. Here, let's. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are? Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Wow. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. That sounds strange. That's what he said earlier, essentially. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. You know, in terms of salvation issues, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. But the Jews have, and the Hebrew people in general have, have always been God's people. God chose them. If, if it hadn't been for God's... <laughs> Uh, leniency, they, they would have been, when Moses came and stood and, and God wanted to wipe them out and start over with Moses, I mean, God decided to relent. I mean, some versions of the scripture say God changed his mind about wiping them out. I don't know if God actually changed his mind, but he certainly relented in his attention to wipe them out. He loved them. He wouldn't have done it if he hadn't. For the gifts, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved. God has already chosen them for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may receive now may receive now, 
they too now receive mercy. They too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that they may be merciful. He may be merciful to all. Try a different translation there. It's not what I was expecting. What does the word consigned mean? I don't understand what the word consigned. Consigned. Locked. Huh? What verse? What is it? How's it? What does it mean? What verse? What verse? The last one, 20, uh, 32. 30. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to okay, all. thank you. Mm-hmm. This is for God has shut up all together and every refusal to yield. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the basic concept there out of Isaiah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Since all have sinned, God can be merciful to all on the same ground. That's Jesus and what Jesus did for them. I'm going to read a different translation here. For just, verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, and because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And let's finish the chapter. Oh, the depths and riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to a gift to him to receive a gift in return. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So the verses 33 through 36 is sort of a doxology. That's a doxology. And a proclamation of praise to God. When he's finished this process and he's thinking about the fact that here he, he, he's been accused of rejecting, throwing away, disregarding his Jewish brethren. Here he's saying no. And he turns to the Gentiles and he says, stop high-fiving yourselves over this. You have nothing to be proud of. You're being grafted in by faith. They can be grafted in by faith. Their disobedience has made room in the family of God for you. How much more will they now be included because of your faith too when they exercise faith? All are disobedient, therefore God can be merciful to all. This is the principle. Back up in um, verses, verse 25 when he's talking about, you know, it seems as though he's talking about until the full measure of the nation shall come in. Is that you know, part, is that talking about, you know, now... We're in what's called this, the church age where the Gentiles, you know, are receiving the good news. And in Revelation, when you get to the church being removed and God, God turning his attention then on this Israel nation that has rejected him and had been hardened. And is he talking about that in terms of the fullness of the nation until that time when God fully opens up the... I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. It's like 
to make room for all the Gentiles that God wants, all the Gentiles who will exercise faith. God has hardened some of the Jews. Um, has, how does he put it? Has come upon part of Israel. Part of the Jews, some of them have rejected Christ to enable the message to go out. Had had the gospel been received without opposition by the Jewish people, there may not have been a push to take the gospel to the Gentiles like there was. And since there was that push, and that push resulted from opposition within Judea to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it enabled and made room for the Gentiles. And what he is saying is, until all the Gentiles who God is going to receive, and whatever that is, until they have been brought in, they will continue to be hardened. It's not a permanent situation. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full measure, the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Could you interpret that as, you know, if you have the northern and the southern kingdom, they're all Israelites, so yeah. they are all Israel. And the Jews, the, the house of Judah, the, the southern tribe, had been hardened until all the, the, the part of Israel, so not all of Israel, not those northern tribes, but the part of Israel might be, you could, could you read that as, as the, the Jew, Jew, the house of Judah, and then as the Gentiles, which are now commingled with the northern tribe, coming in and becoming saved? Because when you look in Revelation, it truly is more of a focus on those Jews that are there in well, what's been hardened here is the part of Israel, if you're using Israel as Paul has been using Israel significantly in many places here, uh, and as he uses Israel elsewhere, uh, he uses that as a reference to all of God's people. Hence, it is a reference that can be used for the church itself, although that's not its referent here. Um, here, Israel being referenced is essentially the Jewish people. Those are the folk who are being hardened to make room for the full measure of Gentiles who are going to come. It's interesting says a part of Israel. So that because, not, that because not all Jews have rejected Christ. Paul is a Jew and he hasn't rejected Christ. And so it's the part of Israel that hasn't rejected Christ that is busy proclaiming the gospel. A lot. That would include the Hellenistic Jews who have received the gospel as well. Um, that's how I'm reading this here. Um, I'm not sure I can push it further in the other direction. And what about the close of that time period? Was that that would be in God's mysterious plan for when the full measure of the Gentiles have been gathered in, whenever that is. And I don't think any of us can say when that would be. That would be like trying to set a date. But <laughs> well, no, not setting a date, but when I you know. look at the, 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 the scripture in Revelation, that certainly a, a shift has taken place from a focus on um, everyone to a specific group of people. Right. And could that be 
what he's talking about here in terms of that mystery. Could be. now, but if they, they won't always be once we have a full measure of the Gentiles. Uh, then Paul was writing this 30 years before the book of Revelation was written. So, I mean, he wasn't aware of that particular vision, but you can identify that period of time that's being referenced that you're talking about with this here. I think you can draw the connection. He doesn't mention it, doesn't mean he may not have been aware. Agreed, but... Because he says... But he doesn't have the book of Revelation in front of him. I mean, (laughs) he does say in other passages, there's things that I know that I I can't reveal to you. Of course. He does say that. Uh, and he here he even mentions the mystery itself. One of the mysteries. Understand this mystery. Hardening has come upon part of Israel, i.e., those those Jews who do not accept Christ. Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so then all Israel will be saved. I.e., every you could you could initially every single Jew, not just those who have currently accepted Christ, but those who will then accept Christ. But you could draw the connection to all of God's people, southern and northern, because then the process of inclusion of the Gentiles, when it becomes complete, would include them. That's a tough one, because we... We don't have full knowledge of Paul's understanding of the whole of the whole thing, and he's not clear because, as he said, he's not going to tell you. <laughs> he's not going to tell us everything. But he, um, he sure quotes I, the Old Testament. He sure quotes the Hebrew scriptures. He certainly quotes Isaiah. He, he's using above. Isaiah. Isaiah. Sounds like uh, Revelation. Chap. Well, yeah. A seraph came. I saw the seraph. Oh, the imagery. The, he's yeah. quoting the imagery yeah. here that that. That fills the book of Revelation. Exactly. No doubt about that. And he talks in some of his other letters to the churches about the catching away of the church. So he is he, he knows about that because he talks about. Well, he talks about the second. He talks about the second coming right. in First Thessalonians. He's asking. And in First Corinthians, he talks about the second coming, and he deals with the question of what that's going to mean for the church, what that means in terms of the second coming of Christ. Of course, he kind of. Got confused about when it was coming to me. Well, that might not have been. Well, he was expecting it next Tuesday. He had an immediate ex- He did have a immediate expectation, but that's beside the point. I mean. So, and that part is capsulized in the first part of what John talks about in Revelation, where the church is taken up. If you understand John that way. Right. <laughs> Which, uh, With, one you, wait, I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. And I, my, my, so there's my, no inconsistency here is, is what I'm saying. I'm sorry? There's not an inconsistency. Oh, there's not an inconsistency there, no. But neither is there a necessity that it be read that way either. Or a reason that you can't. Exactly. There's no necessity to and there's no necessity not to. It... it there is no implicit inconsistency. You know what? We actually finished chapter 11. That's the most, that's the, well, but you know, a large chunk of this is filled with Old Testament citations and imagery. And I think that 
that actually speeds the process up. Makes it more concrete. You almost can't break it up because it's no. That's why I didn't want to stop because he was making connection to connection to connection to connection, and I wanted to finish the connections here on what on the Jewish people and how they were the branches were removed and they can be grafted back in. And Paul actually draws it to a completion and says they will be grafted back in. And chapter twelve almost kind of starts a different train of thought now. Exactly. Now that we've said all that, mm-hmm. let's address what's going chapter on. Chapter twelve takes us on to another point. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.